it really is all about whatever you have to get the video into us, we'll get that video wherever you want to, however you want it to happen. And if you want to broaden your reach or you want to charge more money or you want to uh, add some overlay graphics or you want to make it so it's closed captioned so that the hearing impaired can listen, we kind of add all those little touches on there that make it perfect for these organizations that, that really want to do, do right by their organization and put their best face forward. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we're talking about BoxCast and the growing world of live streaming. Gordon Daly always had an entrepreneurial spirit, but he never let it quite take center stage in his life that is until he founded BoxCast which is a comprehensive, easy-to-use, live video streaming solution for organizations. Gordon grew up in Pennsylvania, but Case Western Reserve University's baseball team ultimately brought him to Cleveland as he wanted to be a baseball player, but ultimately realized he needed a plan B when he did not actually get signed. And this realization led him to Rockwell Automation where he learned the importance of automation in minimizing the amount of mistakes a person can make and spent more than a decade in a variety of roles there prior to founding and leading BoxCast full-time. BoxCast, though, takes those lessons of automation and makes live streaming as simple as plugging in a box. Off the bat of its $20 million Series A fundraising and a series of recent acquisitions, BoxCast has experienced tremendous growth over the last few years, helping organizations meet the growing demand for remote accommodation. Gordon is really building an incredible organization here in Cleveland through BoxCast. And I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Earlier this week, I had just finished up exploration actually of that new red line greenway which which officially had opened uh, right on 25th and I, I was walking by the Detroit Superior Bridge and I came across the box cast office with the logo signage there on the building and it got me uh, got me pretty excited for the conversation today just thinking about and, and knowing how much you guys have grown over over the last few years so definitely very excited to have you on to, to tell the story of boxcast and, and all the work that you're doing there Gordon Oh, thanks for having me. It's it's a fun story to tell. Yeah, so I I think like any good story, we we can start really at the the beginning, and would love to just hear, you know, at a, at a high level, what is Boxcast, and when you think about the founding story, you know, kind of the inspiration and impetus for for putting it together in the first place. Boxcast is actually a really interesting story of how we got started. I think it kind of sets the stage for what it is that we do. Almost ten years ago now, it's crazy to think that it's been. A decade that we've been at this because people think, yeah. oh, who's this overnight success called BoxCast? About 10 years ago, um, a guy named Keith Jenkins at Jenkins Funeral Chapel in Rocky River, Ohio, came to us and said, hey, I'd really like to do a website redesign for my website. And at the time, I was working with some really close friends of mine from college just for fun after, after the day job, just to kind of stay up on technology and what was new. And we, we said, we'd be happy to build you a website for your funeral chapel. And um, we did it, and it was great. And then he said, you know what would be really, ni- really nice is if we could do, just like in Las Vegas, when people get married in Las Vegas and their family can't be there, they stream it. Can you help me stream funeral services because their loved ones can't be there either? And we thought to ourselves, that's really a strange request. I mean, going back 10 years, <laughs> who, who would want to tune into a funeral service? And we kind of 
were taken back by it. But he said, no, 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 it makes a lot of sense because people can't come to these events. You know, lots of folks, their friends maybe are getting up in age or family members just can't escape from what their day responsibilities require. And my job is just to help people facilitate the grieving process. And we said, you know what, you're right. He said, we could password protect it and it'd be great for the families. And so we ended up doing it. He paid us to build this system. But when we did it, he said, there's a trick though. I just don't know anything about technology. I want to really bother with it. Can you just like make it work? Because I don't want it to plug things in and configure software and to try to make this work every time. I just need it to work automatically. And we thought to ourselves, that's e- that's exactly what we do. We automate things. We were working at Rock Automation. We had about a 10-year career there, me and one of my co-founders, and we had another guy also. We said, well, we can automate that, no problem. I mean, the secret with automation is to get the humans out of the equation so that you know critical systems can run. And so that was kind of the beginning of the story. We said, we can definitely help you. Fast forward 10 years now, we do hundreds of thousands of events a month now. Yeah, that's that's an incredible first foray in, into the world of, of streaming. How is it that you go from that that initial encounter to you know actually getting a company off the ground? At what point do you realize, hey, there's something, there's a business we can build here? I think a lot of businesses kind of start in that consulting arena where people are just, hey, I'm tech for hire. What can I build for you? We knew though going in that building a product was something that made a lot more sense just from an enterprise value standpoint. But the beauty of this particular application was that it meant a lot to us personally. We were involved with other organizations in the community, our churches, you know, schools. I played a lot of college sports and my relatives could never come watch me play. So they weren't able to see it. And so when you started to think about what the applications were, we pretty soon, just a matter of a month or two, realized that this application was much larger than just helping funeral homes stream. We even went to a, uh, a funeral home convention, believe it or not, to see if this is something that people would buy. <laughs> There's and there a was convention a little for everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until 2020, right. There's a convention for everything <laughs> until, uh, until a pandemic hits. But that's such a neat, neat thing to think about is, you know, the application of where there's a business need and your passions lie. And our passions certainly lied in connecting people, technology, and uh, helping these organizations that had really meaningful events to people in their lives. And all those three things mixed together just made for a perfect combination. And we knew we wanted to go for it. So put the consulting business uh, to the side and focus on this full time. So it's it's kind of hard enough to start a company, but I, I always have a lot of respect and admiration when you're trying to bridge this world between the digital and the physical worlds. I wanted to ask just at the onset, you know, there, there's a hardware component, right? Just off the bat, in addition to software. So it's not as, as easy as just, you know, putting together an application, for example. So how has it been building kind of a vertically integrated end-to-end solution with, with hardware at, at the onset? How is it that you get that kind of building of, of an actual thing, a physical thing, uh, off the ground? It's actually a little bit more complicated because there's more expenses required to kind of get it off the ground. And you can't, you can't just um, start a company without having a little bit of money to build it. I mean, it's one thing to build something that has material costs, but it's quite another to have to spend a good bit of money to design custom hardware. We knew that uh, for this application to work well, that the problem was largely that people didn't have the technical, the technical expertise in order to be able to stream reliably themselves. And having had background in building custom computers for you know, applications, mission critical applications in the automation world, made it pretty easy for us to say, hey, we know this is possible to do, but 
to be honest with you, the largest, I think, hurdle was just a financial one because our wives of the three co-founders said that, hey, we can't let you guys just mortgage the home to make this dream work. And we thought to ourselves, well, there's really no other way to do it than to just try to start asking people if they can help us fundraise to make it possible to, to invest the amount of money needed to start to do some of the designs of what we, what we knew was necessary to make this work. So we started winning some business plan competitions. So our success story really got sparked when we had uh, the folks at Jumpstart, specifically a guy named George Buzzy at the time, who was an entrepreneur in residence, helped us, hey, tell the story of what it is that you're doing. And then we took it on the tour of business plan competitions, which helped us raise um, $100,000 from the Great Lakes uh, um, Innovation Designing of Enterprises. I think it's called Glide. And then we won a, um, a county award for another $125,000. These are all loans that you eventually have to pay off, but nobody, even a bank would give us a loan. Right. Right. So what that enabled us to do is, although we couldn't quit the day job, at least we could invest in starting to build some hardware. And also we patented the product immediately at the time. And uh, which ended up being a big part of our success stories. Just before you even get started with the business, you do what you can to, to get the protection you can from an intellectual property perspective. So between patents and the hardware at the beginning, that was basically took all the money we had. And the stipulations with those awards is you couldn't pay your own salary anyway. So we kind of had to work underground for a, a little bit of time to kind of get the, the business you know going a little bit. Now, fortunately, we had an amazing relationship with our employer and we told them kind of up front, hey, we have this business we're starting, we're passionate about it, and we don't know where it's going to go. And uh, at the time, we were working at Rockwell Automation, and Rockwell Automation was incredibly helpful with us to support. Um, I mean, we worked our day jobs, don't get me wrong, but right, after right. hours, after hours, and when we decided to make the, the leap, they were of great support to us and encouraging us to, to do it. So I have a great deal of admiration for Rockwell and helping them get our start. But, you know, looking back, 2013, I think is when we made the full-time launch to do it on the heels of an investment from Jumpstart. And that was kind of the, the, the when things really got going is when we could give our full focus onto it. Yeah, that, that's incredible to have that support. On the business model front, how did you think about it in, in the early days? Was it, we're going to take over the funeral industry by a storm <laughs> or you know solving kind of your own problems from you know wishing family could have attended some of those sporting events that you were participating in? What, what was the, the kind of thinking around how to, how to bring something like this to market? Well, our mindset was automation. Uh, we knew that there's a lot of applications where it pays to have a lot of professionals come and do all the videography and shooting and make it a real TV production. But the shame of it is, is most organizations that have events, they can't possibly have a business model that works for that. And we knew that with automation, you could achieve that level of scale where, hey, I can have lots of uh, events every week and everything turns on and off by itself and it just works. So we focused on the markets that had high degree of repeatability of events, plus a high demand for viewership. And the two markets that kind of jumped out right at the onset was sports and the services that you have at churches for weddings and funerals or any faith, uh, synagogues. And we have a lot of interesting clients that are of all faiths, which is exciting to us to see that we're serving people all over the world now. But to answer your question, it was um, a little early for the church space. They weren't quite there yet, but the sports space was mm-hmm. definitely there. In fact, college sports was kind of where we made, made our first entree, you know, entree into the scene because you've got lots of parents that have sent their kids and they're paying expensive tuition checks. The yeah. least they can expect is to be able to watch their kids play sports. And uh, so college sports was kind of where we first got our, our, I think, initial penetration. And I was really lucky to have recruited an awesome sales guy. His name is Mike Donlin from presto sports at the time and he kind of helped us get into a bunch of colleges early on but after that then 
fast forwarding, you know, a little bit of time, then the other industries started to, to show some interest too. But in the beginning, it was really, really fascinating because we were in the impression that we only had like a one or two year window before this whole market was going to explode. Now here we are right. eight years later and it happened with, you know, with COVID last year, but we, we almost were maybe just a little too early, I suppose. <laughs> well, what, what is it like, you know, witnessing your core market 10x overnight, that, that a market that you know is maturing over time, but watching it mature overnight instead? Well, you think the first thing that comes to mind is celebration because, oh my goodness, it's happening. But that wasn't it at all. You know what it was? It was like this great sense of responsibility because the whole, you know, millions and millions of people are depending on you to be there when you need it. And as is the case with many businesses, ours is at its greatest exposure when there's the greatest amount of attention on it because that's when you're getting the load of the most load. And so when you go, when you go basically overnight, I mean, I think over the course of three or four weeks, we were 20 times higher than where we were, you know, in the onset. So every week we had an opportunity to try to, in that work week, try to do everything we could to be ready to brace for the next work week. So it was a little bit more of a scramble, both on the support side and technology side to make sure that you could have the product working from the engineering standpoint, but also getting product out to customers and taking orders became a struggle too. I mean, we were at the point where we couldn't hire, you know, really fast enough. And, um, the executive team had to end up taking all the support calls in order for the all of the support team just to start hiring people so that we can build capacity. Right. So demand for the product crew too, but usage in both demand at the same time. It was it was pretty wild. How do you think about the longevity of of that, you know, breakneck explosion in, in the market and amplification of it is what is live streaming from from your perspective look like post pandemic? This is what excites me about this shift. I mean, sure, it's cool that the business progressed and we got a lot of customers, but the the most significant change is the society has now accepted this as common practice. Meaning, before 2020, we would have to advocate, blag, you know, basically beg and plead people to respect the needs of remote viewers who couldn't be at these events. There's a lot of people that wish they could be at important events but can't be there. So we were always kind of advocating for their needs. And most people are like, ah, I'm mostly concerned about just what's happening on site with the participants that are here. We're like, no, but you have an audience that's just as big as this that would want to tune in, tune in if they could remote. We don't have to worry about that anymore because now everybody knows what it's like to be remote because everybody's been remote. Right. right? So that's the easiest thing is it's now understood that the need for this is just so obvious, which in hindsight, you know, it's like, oh, well. Wouldn't it have been great for some of those investors we talked to over the course of the last 10 years to, to, <laughs> to take a shot on us? But, you know, nobody would. I mean, we didn't really take our first institutional investment until uh, just this end of the last year. And, and what, what is the, the risk aversion there from the perspective of, of investors? That, what, was, what was it that they did not think would happen that obviously has transpired now, but at the time? Well, they were threatened by uh, Facebook and YouTube getting in the market with a consumer-based product that was focused on a free option. Like, why would anybody ever pay for streaming if there's a free option? And, I mean, we're in the industry, so we know very, very closely the brands care a whole heck of a lot about how they look and how they're perceived and quality and reliability matter and uh, flexibility and privacy and all these different things that you wouldn't know until you got into it that, oh, media rights is an issue. If I have a song playing at halftime for my football game and it gets picked up, the robots turn it off on Facebook and the feed's dead for a day or two, right? I mean, when you're streaming with Boxcast, we understand fair use and these other things. So there's a, a whole host of issues if you're a brand in your organization and you want to stream something that Boxcast solves for 
very elegantly. Not to mention the fact that if you want to maximize your exposure, you can't only have your video into Facebook. So starting with something like Boxcast gives you that reach into all the platforms all at the same time on your terms with the best quality and reliability you'd hope for. Yeah, I think that's a, a good area to, to dive a little deeper on because when I think about live streaming, I think you know the things that come to mind from a consumer familiar live streaming is Twitch, Facebook, Live, YouTube. But I, you know, I, I get the sense it's not exactly the core focus of what you guys are doing at Boxcast. And so I, I'd love to get you know, how you think about those more consumer-facing live streaming things that I think would come to mind when people hear the words live streaming and relative to, to what you're doing at Boxcast. Yeah, you know, our niche is probably more along the lines of events that are happening that people can't be at is what we try to help showcase out. So it's not necessarily just a uh, webinar type application that's going to have lots of two-way interaction. It's kind of a broadcast of, of one to many. And when you think about what a brand cares most about, it's just not aligned with what a lot of the free options offer. I mean, the free options are predisposed to do things that are in the best interests of their business, which is to connect people and get your viewers onto other people's content. Because what's the next shiny, most exciting thing they can throw in front of people's faces? You know, you have an opportunity to actually lose viewership. I think Facebook and um, some of these uh, other platforms are great for attracting attention. But I don't think that if I'm a brand, I want all of my content to only be on those platforms necessarily, because then you lose the ability to influence the viewers. The key is like, where where is the action happening? And a lot of our customers love the idea of the action happening at their website or in their TV app. It's not that it can't also happen at Facebook, it's just that they might want it to be at YouTube at the same time or these other platforms at the same time. Or maybe they wanna make money on it, or maybe they wanna run their own ads because you're not really supposed to run your own ads in a feed that's in Facebook, it's against their policies. So, I mean, there's just a whole host of things that you just, once you get into it, you realize, I mean, the free one's just not going to work. And Boxcast gives you unlimited streaming for $99 a month. So there's really no, the hurdle's so low to enter it for the improved quality that people kind of, they're happy to jump in. Yeah. And, and what does, what does Boxcast look like today? What's the, what's the lay of the land, if, if you will? In terms of customers or in terms of, of, of employees, uh, products, what's kind of... Yeah, the, the suite of offerings, the distribution that you have now, what the company kind of looks like here in Cleveland. So we've got about 80 people now. Most of the people are here in Northeast Ohio. I think it's like 65-ish or here in Northeast Ohio. We've done a, a couple of acquisitions that have brought us some customers that are in different parts of the country. But for the most part, we're here. And kind of the, the, the suite of the products is ranging from our own hardware devices, which are a simple to use little box that you plug your video and audio into and it just basically teleports that video and audio into the cloud so we can stream it to the audience or a high-end professional box it's several thousand dollars that a tv station could use or even your phone so we have an ios app that can acquire the video and audio it's best in class video streaming quality i mean it's amazing 1080p 60 hgvc these are all technical terms but these are the kinds of um, quality that's that rivaling broadcast quality right from your phone that's in your pocket. So uh, we've been able to leverage you know the great technology people have that's that they already own. It really is all about whatever you have to get the video into us. We'll get that video wherever you want to, however you want it to happen. And if you want to broaden your reach, or you want to charge more money, or you want to uh, add some overlay graphics, or you want to make it so it's closed captioned so that the hearing impaired can listen, we kind of add all those little touches on there that make it perfect for these organizations that, that really want to do 
do right by their organization and put their best face forward. And in, in terms of the markets that you started in and where you are now, have is it is it been a depth of exploration or has it been more of a breadth of exploration? A little, it's been more breadth of exploration just because the concept of video streaming applies to so many different applications. Sure, we got to start in sports and churches, but now we're seeing a lot of municipalities. You wouldn't believe the breadth. I mean, today we had literally the British Army sign up, like the UK Army signed up for BoxCast today. <laughs> and we had earlier in the pandemic, we had the Sri Lanka Tourism Board sign up who's now giving virtual safari tours and the Australian Parrot Society. And there's all these just amazing applications that you would never suspect people would ever do that now we get to be a part of uh, their story too. So it's, it's neat to be in this industry. It's, it's a lot like what I imagined it would be if you were in the news industry because there's so many different kinds of things you could never anticipate being news that kind of show up. Well, we have all kinds of customers we never could have anticipated coming. Yeah, no, that, that, is, that is very cool to hear. I, I was curious what you know, like the most interesting things you've seen organizations stream using BoxCast, but. <laughs> you, this story, oh, there's lots. Of, let me just give you, let me just give you. I'll give you one, my, one of my favorites and then one of the strangest ones. My favorite is we have a Snowy Pines Labrador dog breeders, which you can imagine what dog uh, breeders, how busy they are these days. But when puppies are too small to go home to their new owners, they need to stay to nurse with their mother. They do a video stream every day of all the puppies playing together. And every puppy gets a little different colored collar. So that people, the new, the new parents who can't wait to have that puppy come home to them can watch them play with their siblings until they're old enough to go home. That's, that's my personal favorite. But that's the, uh, the most interesting one was <laughs> a skeptics conference in Mexico City where they revealed an alien body that they uh, showed to everybody. From, from outer space. Yeah. Well, reportedly, someplace <laughs> in outer space. I, I, don't have yeah. any, um, I don't have any commentary on the legitimacy of that. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And it makes sense the the breadth of exploration. But one of the things I was I was curious about was in the early days, I, I think we've all become accustomed to throwing around the suffix of tech on multiple industries. You know, you have fintech and health tech and ag tech and ed tech as technology just ingrains its way into every walk of our life. But I don't know that I've had the exposure to the world of what religious tech was like and and selling into you know, religious institutions and, and organizations, especially considering just the the scale of that market, you know, just taking ed tech, you know, for every three schools in a town, uh, you know, there's going to be three, three churches, um, you know, per school. And yeah, you're right. I mean, for every college, there's 10 high schools. For every high school, there's 10 churches. I don't think people realize just how many churches or synagogues or temples there are in, in America. It's, it's incredible. And all over the world too, but America is really dense. And the, that opportunity is huge. And we've scratched the surface of it, but we haven't really gone deep from a specialty in that vertical outside of just tailoring that, su- that solution well from a video standpoint for them. Yeah, it's really interesting though to, to think about. That market, the faith market's awesome because, well, you'd assume that they would pay their bills because they're very ethical people, you would hope, right? By their own, by their own teachings. But Right, um, right. They're very. They're typically a very stable customer base, and their venues don't change. A lot of our customers go from place to place, but when their venues kind of in the same area all the time, it makes it so it's really easy to support them as customers. So you mentioned that you know both in the earlier days, um, and I, I imagine also now with the with the Series A that that you closed just at the end of last year, I believe for for twenty million that you know capital. It's an important part of getting this business business off the ground. 
and there have been some some acquisitions along the way as well. And so I I, I wanted to start just at a at a higher level with a, an exploration of how you've thought about the capital strategy and you know when to to build versus when to buy and how you're thinking about you know deploying this capital that that you've just brought in. Well, it's always a difficult decision. Certainly, we. I'm the aggressive CEO. That's, I guess, why I'm in the position I'm in. So in my mind, I've always wanted to, when we can justify it, do what we can to grow the business faster. And um, had I been more successful to maybe raise capital a little bit sooner, I, I probably would have taken the opportunity to do it because I saw the opportunity that was out there to get. And I still see an opportunity that's out there. So there's opportunities to grow through acquisitions. That's where some of the money has already gone. I mean, we announced the acquisition of Stream Monkey not that long ago. But at the heart of BoxCast is really wanting to build a great product that everybody wants to wants to use and enjoys using. Um, we've got an incredible, incredible uh, NPS score for our product. I think we're in the seventies, which is kind of world-class oh, wow. customers when they, when they use it, they love it. And that means it's good. Or that means it's good for retention, but it also means that you can talk with them and spend time with them and continue to delight them. And hopefully they'll share it with other people so that you can grow more. And I think that's part of why we had good success during the COVID you know, pandemic was because people that had a good experience with us, you know, were happy to tell others to use it. So I think the biggest driver for growth for us is definitely the product. We believe in this concept of product-led growth, which you've probably seen talked about, or if people haven't seen it, they should check out and do a little Google searching on product-led growth. But we really feel that that's where the investment should be. And there's an opportunity for both buy and build there for sure. We're excited as to uh, where the world takes video. Because it's just beginning. I mean, this is a huge market. It's an it's a massive media shift. And uh, when you asked about which, you know, you're asking, you were saying fintech, ad tech. I mean, I think this is media tech because I think media is kind of going through a massive transformation now. We just want to be a part of that. I think if we build the right products and make our choices well with that, and continue to recruit great technology, you know, people here in Cleveland or close by, that you know, we'll be able to satisfy and take advantage and grab our little foothold of what's out there for the in the future. What is what does product-led growth mean to you? And with that, you know, how how do you think about differentiation and, and competition? You know, especially in in the aftermath of the last year, I feel like maybe the most obvious second-order effect of the whole pandemic was, as every single one of us spent our lives now, basically streaming on on some platform or another. How you think about pursuing a product-led growth strategy in a space where I imagine there is increasing competition? Oh, there's going to be a lot of competition, which is another reason why it was necessary for us to put a little bit of a ju- juice behind what we're doing because we knew the competition was going to be stiffer. Product-led growth is really this idea that product itself is the best driver for growth. You know, there's lots of sales-led efforts where you're spending a lot of money on sales or marketing efforts. You know, when we think about when we think about Boxcast, we think of this that that marketing certainly tells the story. But it's they're telling the story about the product itself, and the sales is necessary to help make sure it all works. But you're kind of leading with the investments on the product side to have the product people want to buy and have a product that has um, a little bit of virality to it, too. There's no reason why at Boxcast we can't take advantage of the fact that we have hundreds of millions of people that are watching our videos, right? There's an opportunity there that I don't think we've taken advantage of that others have that you know we're going to catch up on. We don't see a lot of our comp- direct competitors that were, you know, exactly directly against doing necessarily a lot of as much product-led growth as what we think we want to do. But we're seeing other players that are close by, they're doing a really good job of it, that we're watching very, very closely. So um, the secrets out on this is being a great way to more efficiently grow your business. Uh, whereas traditionally it's, hey, I, 
throw a bunch of money at hiring a whole addition, you know, 50, 50 salespeople and take, you know, take over and conquest with brute force. It's not as efficient as you can do it from a capital efficiency standpoint. It's also not as good for the salespeople. I, I, our salespeople love the fact that we don't have to hire more salespeople, but you know, with what we already have, we're making better and better things for them to sell that they can be more successful individually. I love the idea of doing it that way. I want to pull on that thread of some of the opportunity you see for the future with, with really the, the eyeballs that you have, you know, through Boxcast. Um, and, and I think there's a, a few, I imagine many interesting, um, you know, potential opportunities for you there. How do you think about it? You know, the, the, the ideas that come to mind for me, like first off the bat was, is there some kind of content aggregation play for Boxcast similar to, you know, how Netflix has, has, you know, come to market, but I'd love to, to get your take on just how you're thinking about that. You know what? It's interesting you say that because we've kind of reached that point of critical mass. Where we probably could do something like that, right? I mean, I think right now Boxcast is streamed in the tens of thousands. We're, our embed code shows up on, you know, in the tens of thousands of different sites where people can watch that content. And that's where you then have however many hundreds or thousands of people that are watching that content. So there is a massive opportunity for that. And why wouldn't we potentially have it on our site? I think we could. I think we could. When we first started this, our value proposition was different, Jeffrey. What we were trying to do is say, hey, unlike Facebook or YouTube, who is going to steal all your content and they get all the benefit from the advertisements and everything else, how about you have a product that's ad-free? So we'll be a professional product you pay for so that your brand isn't distracted or diluted by other people's brands because you've basically given away your content. You know, you've given away your ability to keep that focus for your customer on your brand. But the truth is, at the same time, what's also there is that some of these people just want more exposure. So if we have the potential for having a site maybe where we could aggregate that content if our customers wanted it to be there, I think it's a really good idea that, you know, that we've, we've started to kick around. But you can't start there, right, because you don't have critical mass at the beginning. You kind of have to build something that people love, they're willing to pay for, in order for then you to be able to take care of the critical, you know, take advantage of the critical mass once you've got it. So I think we're kind of at the tipping point where we're starting to have enough right? Enough critical mass to do it. And how do you think about that higher level vision for BoxCast now? Like what, what is the impact that, that you would like to have uh, looking forward? Well, one of the neat things about our purpose in wanting to make people part of the experience is it really doesn't have an end line necessarily. It has an end line with each individual person you're making part of the experience, but there's so many things that we are excited about investing in and building to make it possible for people to have not just uh, more accessibility to content they want to see, but even a better glimpse of it or you know, better reliability, better quality, better ease of use. That's kind of what we focused on from the beginning is ease of use. We took something that was really complicated and it was really hard to do, but we made it very, very simple for it to be both simple and reliable. And that's kind of um, an important thing that we'll want to continue to do. But there's so many opportunities for us to continue to reach more people with better, better thing, you know, better, better product features, or unlocking certain areas that you know didn't exist before, and I can't go into too much detail on it because we haven't built it yet and can't announce it all yet. But you know, we're excited about the future and what it holds because you know it's only it's not going to be less video with time. Even as people return back to their lives, everything's going to be hybrid, right? Just like they talk about work being, hey, I used to go into the office every day, then I stayed at home every day. Well, there's in the future, there's going to be a place where there's going to be need to be both because you can't have it exclusively one way or the other. And we know that permanence applies certainly to video where people are going to want to be at events in person, but they will still expect to be at events remotely. And what can we do to make it so that every broadcaster can be more like a television studio in terms of quality 
while still keeping it as easy, as easy as possible. It's exciting to think about the the avenues for for expansion for you guys there. On a more tactical front, just something through my own personal experience that have learned is uh, quite difficult is is going through these acquisitions. I know you mentioned Stream Monkey and and you had the acquisition of of Sunday Streams prior, but the thing that I I haven't been able to just from the outside figure out how it exactly works is first off, you know, one of the hardest things is always just the the cultural component of those acquisitions and and from the people side, how you you work to to work through those acquisitions. But I'm also really curious on the technology side, you know, having different hardware platforms, different software platforms, how how you're thinking about either, you know, letting the companies and, and looking forward to potentially other acquisitions operate independently, or is there a plan desire to, to kind of integrate that from the hardware and software side as well? So you started with culture. Let's start there because in my mind, your best chance of success on the culture side is making sure that there's compatibility before you start. Cause I think I've seen stats where it's like nine out of 10 mergers, like don't produce the results that people had hoped that they would produce. In our case, we've been, I think, very successful three out of three times now, which um, is a pretty good track record. And I have to give credit to the team more than more than me because I'm not doing you know hardly any of the work. I'm just kind of a little bit on the, uh, further ahead on, on some folks on how we think about it. But from a culture standpoint, there's making sure you make the right pick of the partner. And then secondly, there's just a, s- a sincere amount of intentionality about how you can make it work. You have to be very clear as to expectations of what you're expecting of folks before you even do the deal so that once they get on the other side, they'll see your follow through. There should be a lot of thoughtfulness put in into just like any good manager would understanding where people's passions lie in order to kind of draw up the right positions for them. And um, we're really fortunate that we were able to bring in a people operations director not that long ago, I think about a year ago now, we brought in Claire Conoval and she had somehow had experience with 24 different acquisitions before she came to us. We're not even a big company, but she was involved in 24 other deals. So it, we're aided with her having a chance to see part of that experience to make it a little bit easier for us because every time we do another acquisition, there's more people involved because usually it's a bigger deal every time. And that was the other piece of it. It's just the intentionality of trying to make sure the people that are coming in feel like they're a part of the new company, feel like they're in positions where they're going to be successful. It's a lot of work. You can't just, you just can't bypass it or assume it. On the technology side, I don't know how companies really expect to give the benefit out of if they don't fully integrate with each other. So in our mindset, that's really the only option is for us to fully integrate. We sometimes mm-hmm. can do it faster at times than other times. But um, in my mind, if you're going to do a relationship or a partnership, it's like a marriage. You kind of have to just go all in and just assume that you the two have become one. It does take time and it is distracting. And, you know, not every, not every move is the perfect move, but once you get through that normal that normalization period of people getting used to each other, you'd be surprised at when you've got a welcoming bunch that want other people to be a part of it, that are kind of enjoying the ride, that positivity can breed positivity, which has worked in our in our favor the last three times. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. <laughs> so I I know you're you know currently at this uh, this office over here in in Ohio City by the by the bridge, but I, I know in the earlier days there was a a period of time where you were operating out of Burke Lakefront Airport, which I imagine not everyone is aware, but I, I'd love to hear what, what that was like, how that came to, to, to be and any, uh, 
fun reflections you have back in in the days of Burke? Well, that was our real office. Before that, we were in the basement of in my in, my, in the basement of um, behind my house at the St. Mel's Convent in West Park, kind of <laughs> working on the manufacturing all by myself. And my wife would come in at four in the morning and say, "Hey, you have to go to bed. It's too late. You have to go to work. You know, in three hours or whatever." The early days of startups were tough. Burke was awesome. We really enjoyed getting there. I don't know how we found out about it. I think maybe a, um, one of uh, one of the people that we knew at the time, his name was Ken. You know, we were kind of shopping around for different places because we knew we needed a place to go. I don't know if he suggested or we were driving by it, but we went in to kind of see what was available. Oh, I know what it was. It was Lean Dog. So I'm pretty close friends with John Stall over at Lean Dog. N- yeah. Nobody knows this. I don't know if people know this. John and I went to the same high school in uh, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Blackhawk oh, High School. Wow. And so we kind of had gone back. I went. I actually graduated with his brother. And I said, John, do you have any space? He's like, man, I don't have any space. But you know who does is the airport because we were just in the airport before you. So that's how I got in. I just remembered that's how I got in there. Um, the airport was a ton of fun. It was a neat place to have an office for the first time. Parking was awesome. You could kind of just <laughs> kind of park right there. It was free. But um, oh, there's so many good stories uh, from from Burke. Yeah, I can't even imagine, honestly. <laughs> Let me tell you. So, I mean whether it's having pizza with the blue angels, like the fighter pilot guys, that kind of stuff was cool. The one that sticks out in my mind most vividly was when Johnny Manziel got drafted. That tells you the era when we were there. Johnny (laughs) Manziel was reported to be landing in Cleveland. We went downstairs and found out from the, um, you know, from the, from the dispatch people, like what flight was coming. I think this one might be him coming in from Texas or New York or wherever the, maybe I think he was in New York for the draft or something. And, um, we were close with the uh, ESPN Cleveland folks, you know, the big, the uh, really big show um, has, you know, their morning broadcast, which is, you know, every, a lot of people listen to. So we called them up and said, hey, listen, we think he's coming in on this plane and we're going to stream it. So we hopped up on the roof with the cameras and um, I think we ended up putting the, the video onto the ESPN Cleveland website. So we had like a live shot of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of, of of the of the doors opening up and like three business people came out and it wasn't Johnny Manziel or you know I think it was a different thing came in, but, um yeah that that's that was a fun that was a fun story yeah wow that that must have been awesome so I, I'll I'll keep it on on Cleveland for for a moment you know you mentioned kind of the the earlier support from investors here in Cleveland and growing the team here in Cleveland but obviously kind of expanding a little bit uh, over over time would love to just get your perspective on how you've seen the the overall kind of ecosystem here change over the last few years. Yeah, I've got some I guess some major takeaways. I mean, when I think about the way it was, I can't understate how much I benefited from a number of individuals who are very successful professionals, you know, kind of executive level professionals throughout Cleveland that helped me along the way. I was not bashful to ask people for help and I never had anybody say no to me. I don't know if that's the case everywhere. I, I, I get the suspicion that Cleveland's a little bit more open to that. And um, although fundraising is super hard in Cleveland, I think it's that was the hardest part of our story was just getting fundraising for people to believe in what you were doing. Maybe it can be made up for the fact that I just had some incredible people that volunteered their time. You know, let me just highlight a few. I mean, Toby and Melanie Maloney are incredible entrepreneurial coaches here in the in the ecosystem. They live and breathe entrepreneurs. And they came alongside us and yeah, they may, they may have made an investment in us, but what was the most valuable was that they gave us, they gave us years of their time to just come into the office every day and help us out. We couldn't pay for anybody else to help us. And we need desperately needed the help to get through some things. You know, I can't understand how valuable folks like them were. I mean, we had, 
a guy named Jeffrey Whedon come in. And that name, Jeffrey, isn't just your first name. Other people have it too. But <laughs> Jeffrey Whedon was the CFO at Key Bank that had just retired just on the heels of kind of the big bank regulation changes. And he said, hey, you know, is there something that I can do to help? And we leaned on him heavy to help us figure out how to do the books, financials. And he worked so closely with your buddy, Peter Spaulding. I mean, if you ask Peter about Jeff, you know, he learned a ton from Jeff because Jeff was giving of his time. And so I'm thankful for uh, a lot of these people who, once they got involved, they believed in what we we're doing. And, you know, they certainly, you know, came with some contributions to help us financially. But that, does, that pales in comparison to just the uh, emotional support and um, practical support that they had as experts in their domains. Uh, another guy, Mike Van Tusco, was another guy who came to help us out, who's now a big, big wig SaaS CFO that had success at Overdrive. I think he was the financial guy at Overdrive. But, you know, he's still someone that I, I talk to on a very regular basis that helps me out through all kinds of situations that come up. Steve Bartlett, former HR chief at Eaton Corporation, helping me navigate through all the, the strange people situations you'd never knew even existed unless you were in a management position or a CEO, yeah. you know, CEO of a fast-growing <laughs> startup. It's crazy how wild the, uh, the world has. So, I mean, the reflections for me come back to all those, those folks that kind of came in that just volunteered their time to make us a success because they're probably the biggest reason why we were able to, to, to make it last this long. To have our yeah, shot. That, 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 that's another reflection. You know, I actually was just saying this to uh, a friend of mine, Alex Hillary. Is, you know, if you can just hang in long enough, you know, eventually, you know, success will find its way to you. If you can just hang in long, long enough because, you know, you can't always time the market on things. And you think you've got a product market fit and you might, but you never know what, uh, what, what can happen once you've stayed in it long enough and you're the one, either the last one standing or there to pick up when, uh, when it hits. Yeah, <laughs> all of that resonates quite a lot think uh, often about time as the enemy of startups in the earlier days when, you know, just runway are, is, is the primary constraint. Well, and that's another, that's a whole nother one too. I mean, at BoxCast, we were at the point where um, we had to make some serious decisions as to how aggressively we thought we could take it, how conservative should we be. And without the funding that was coming from institutional investors, we, we couldn't probably have gone as fast as we would have liked to have gone, but that's not all bad either. Because we learned a lot of financial discipline, I and mean, we broke through profitability a couple of years before we took funding, it gave us the chance for us to determine our own destiny. So in our case, we kind of just waited until the terms were right for us to be the ones to check to to determine the terms, um, because we weren't, you know, we didn't have the world that understood that there was going to be such a need for video streaming like there is today. Right, and I'm sure that affords you a a, a kind of leverage in in those terms that you would not have had otherwise. I'm going to be on the entrepreneur side for all these, right? And <laughs> my perspective is the entrepreneurs are um, always arguing for, you know, the value of their business being higher when they're talking to investors. I just think that there's a little bit of a depressed perception of what the value of startups are in town. Now, investors around town are going to say the exact opposite, I'm sure. But you know, in our case, we were right. So it's, maybe it's easy for me to say that. Yeah. But the the other point that just resonates a lot is the approachability of 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 mentors and and other entrepreneurs here and just the the willingness to to help it, it is it is i think not the norm and it, it's definitely something that that i appreciate it as well you know that makes me think of the fact that at boxcast our part of our success i think is the fact that our team has just stayed so intact i mean we've only ever in the history of the company they had six people ever voluntarily leave and three of them went to go start their own, own their own businesses and another one went to because they moved out of town and they had success in their career so it was hard for us to, you know we can't we can't keep everybody, but you know when I see the average matriculation rate 
being 10%, in my mind, it just blows my mind because I think ours has been 10% over the course of the whole past, you know, 10 years, roughly. Yeah. Um, so there's a loyalty in Cleveland that, that makes it so that you've got a, a fighting shot at being successful. Maybe I just got really lucky with some of the folks that we brought in. We just have some, just a super talented group of folks that it's a lot of fun to work with every day. And that's, I, I think, what, what's made the last 10 years so great is just working with the likes of Peter Spaldings and Mike Griffiths and Sam Brenners and all these neat people that you wouldn't have you know, had a chance to meet had you not had an opportunity to work together like this. Yeah, that's pretty special. So to, to kind of wind down here, uh, still on the topic of Cleveland, though, and one of the things that we're doing here on, on the podcast is, is putting together a collage of not necessarily people's favorite things in Cleveland, but things other people may not necessarily know about. So with that, I'll, I'll ask you about your, your favorite hidden gems in Cleveland. There's too many to pick from, but I'll give you, I'll give you <laughs> one. It's, it's actually a hidden gem because I don't know who knows about it, but if you were to drive through the Metro Parks, which is a massive gem in itself, Underneath one of the bridges lies the most amazing place to skip stones. It's this real long, flat stretch of water that, that gives you a pretty good runway to go with. And, you know, that stretch of water that's flat is only done by just, you know, the massive amount of perfectly shaped skipping stones that you could just go and <laughs> I could skip all day. That, there is an abundance of amazing skipping stones down in the Metro Park. I had noticed that as well. <laughs> there are. And it's a lot, I like to skip stones, so you don't have to work too hard to find it. And you, I feel like you are about to do another one there. Oh, another, another hidden gem? Well, I don't know how hidden it is, but I mean, Grumpy's for breakfast is pretty awesome. So No one, no one has mentioned Grumpy's yet. Nobody's brought that one up? That's a quick, <laughs> no. that's an awesome breakfast spot. Yeah. That's or, the, that's or you know what? Luca's, Luca's got this appetizer. It's got this, this, new, this noodle purse with goat cheese in it. It's incredible. So I'll give a shout out to Luca. Mm. They're d- just down the street from us at the Viaduct. Our office is at West 25th in Detroit, but there's uh, Luca's right there at the end of the viaduct that overlooks Jacob's Pavilion. It's They've got a great happy hour and dinner. If you've not taken your significant other there, it's a real nice place to go in town. Yeah, it is. It is quite nice over there. Well, Gordon, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the story. Um, I really enjoyed learning about it, everything you're doing, and it's very exciting to, to see the success you guys are, are having here. Um, so definitely rooting for you from the side. Well, I love the podcast, so keep it coming. Thanks for doing what you do, and I appreciate the honor of being here. Awesome. Well, if people have anything that they want to follow up with you about, um, where is the, the best place for them to find you? Oh, they can shoot me an email, gordon at boxcast.com. Really easy. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, so shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high-quality guests to the show. Taken Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.